Do a rock and roll at church. Amen. Now, I was on my way to the YMCA on uh, Friday and uh, going there to, to get some exercise, you know, and I turned on the radio and uh, just, you know, instantly there was a uh, the press release or press uh, conference, rather, where the governor uh, uh, was talking about. Uh, what had happened at the school? I'm sure everyone's heard about it, and it was just uh, it just really hit me, you know. And then they, they had a teacher come on who had been there at the school. I mean, this was already uh, that morning, Friday morning, uh, but she was on, and she was just describing the scene and and uh, how you could hear over the PA what was going on and the little kids, and it was just uh, I was just overcome with emotion, just hearing the emotion that she went through, just feeling like how could this happen, you know? I'm sure you probably felt the same way. How could this happen? And, and I felt so much anger towards that person who committed this against little children and, and uh, you know, had these thoughts of, you know, where is God in all this? And uh, what a dark world that we're in. And, uh, you know, is there a solution? What do we do? What do we do with this kind of stuff? And uh, there's, a, there's a psalmist that was very honest when he wrote this in Psalm 10. He said, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His victims are crushed, they collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. We can all feel that way sometimes. It is a dark world around us and bad things happen. And we can feel, where is God? Why, God, do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You know, ever feel like you're just in this situation, you just need God to show up? Uh, that was the time... Uh, the series that we're in right now from the book of Isaiah, that was the kind of time God's people were in. It was a time of darkness. It was a time of gloom. It was a time of distress. If you'd be turning over to Isaiah chapter 9, that's our, our text for this series. And just to give you the context, uh, this time in, in the history of God's people, His kingdom had split in two. And so there was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in the northern kingdom, all the kings were evil, every single one of them. And in the southern kingdom, many of them were leading them astray. And at the time of, of, of this writing, Ahaz was the king, and he was just horribly evil. And he was looking to all these other sources for strength instead of God, trying to make alliances with Egypt, trying to make alliances with Assyria. And Assyria at this time and Egypt were kind of the great world powers. And if you look on the screen here, Assyria grew to be a... a it was the first empire like this where... Assyria uh, conquered all of these nation states. You know, they, they had all of this territory. And during the period of Isaiah, that, 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 the 60 year period that Isaiah was written, they grew from this, this small, light, dark green to this light green. They expanded their kingdom, their empire. And there had never been a nation like this in the planet. And if they, God's people were this little yellow patch right there. So they were just surrounded by this huge, imposing, terrible army, the king of Assyria. And it's interesting how there's some scriptures about the king of Assyria specifically that, 
when you read them, you would think it's writing about Satan. And sometimes, sometime I'll talk about that. It's amazing because it talks about how you were a morning star, son of the dawn. You said to yourself, I will exalt myself above God. All this kind of stuff. But it's writing about the king of Assyria, but it's really the character of Satan. So it was a dark time. And in, in, in Isaiah chapter 8, right before uh, the passage we're going to look at, it, it said that, that, that people were distressed and hungry and famished and enraged and they will curse God. And then it ends with this. On the screen, Isaiah 8:22. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. They will be thrust into outer darkness. Wow. You ever feel like you're in that situation? Like you just really need God to show up. Things are desperate. Things are dark. Maybe you're feeling this way uh, this time of year with emotional things you go through. You know, emotions can be tough in the holidays. People deal with family issues. Uh, many of us, you know, Jay shared about dysfunction in his family. Many of, many of us in this room come from dysfunctional families and holidays brings the families together and it can be a time of, that's emotionally trying and difficult. Uh, financial hardships many of us have gone through in the last several years. Uh, trouble in your marriage, trouble with, with your kids, uh, for the teen ministry, trouble with your parents, you know. We can have trouble with school, trouble with other peers, uh, peer pressures, all those kinds of things. We can feel all these things and we can feel like, God, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? But the good news here is in Isaiah chapter 9, the very next passage, Isaiah 9 verse 1. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. And then a familiar passage uh, down in verse 6, especially this time of year, says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. It's amazing. This birth announcement was written during this horrible dark time in, in, in God's, the history of God's people and it was, it was 700, over 700 years before Jesus came, and yet it's announcing His birth and that He is the plan. And He always was the plan to be able to bring light to this dark world. And uh, we're, we're covering this in our series. All year long we've been talking about Jesus and different aspects of Jesus' ministry and Jesus' character. And we're closing out 2012 with this series called He Shall Be Called from this passage. Last week, Steve talked about Wonderful Counselor. I wasn't with you, but I, I listened to it online. It was great. I was in the West preaching for them. But uh, this week we're talking about the topic, Mighty God. Mighty God. Let's uh, go ahead and have a word of prayer. God, we're so humbled as we look to your word uh, at how small we are and how weak we are and how small we are in the timeline of your creation and of your people. And yet, thank you that although you are mighty God, that you stoop down and make us great and you care about us individually and you hear us when we're hurting and you help us when we're lonely. And Father, I pray for, for the families of the victims of, of the horrible tragedy this week and, and, and so many other tragedies that, that don't get reported on the news. I know really it's just a small fraction of the heartache that so many are experiencing all around the world right now. The, you know, 40,000 people killed in Syria. Just horrible atrocities, uh, God. And uh, Father, we need you. We need, this dark world needs light. And I pray that you would speak to each of us from your, from your scriptures right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He shall be called one, uh, Mighty God. Uh, a little bit farther back here in Isaiah, 
Isaiah chapter 7 is a, is a scripture that is quoted in Matthew when it tells the story of Jesus' birth. Matthew, uh, Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, uh, conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What a profound name. Just think about that for a second. God with us. God with us. Let's fast forward 700 years now. Turn to the book of John. And we'll see this fulfilled. Before we do that, I want to uh, lighten the mood here. Share a story. Um, back in, uh, in college, my wife and I met at the University of Colorado. And uh, we were uh, in the same Bible talk. And uh, we lived on the same floor of the same dorm. And uh, not on purpose, it just worked out that way. And so we saw each other all the time. And uh, we, were, we were boyfriend, girlfriend, we were dating, and, and uh, we were leading a Bible talk together. And, uh, you know, it was, it was awesome. But then I was called to be an intern on another campus in another city uh, down in Denver. And so I had to move about 45 minutes away. And so, uh, you know, after I'd been gone, for, I was there that summer and then that fall. And then that Christmas, I, I decided to uh, make Dessa a present since I couldn't be there all the time, I decided to make her a doll that looked like me. And so this is a picture of Dessa with the Brian doll back in college. When she first got it, you know, she opened the present and it was in this box and uh, it was covered, it was kind of had some packaging around it. So the, the head is kind of bigger than the body. So the body was kind of covered with the packaging. So she opens this present and it's like this head of this doll that looks like me. And so her reaction was kind of like, Oh, and then she got excited, but it's because I wanted her to be able to be with me. And, and here's a picture of me in college uh, sleeping. I had a lot more hair back then. Beside the Brian doll, he's still awake, as you can see. And uh, a few a few years later, you know, the Brian doll was a part of our life there as we were dating. And then it kind of got put away, put on a shelf. You know, it was it's kind of fragile, so it was put away for many many years. And some, you know, my friends knew about it. My friends from college had 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 much delight with throwing it around and doing you know doing different things with it. And uh, so then a few of my college friends, uh, like a, a couple years ago, decided they thought it would be funny to steal the Brian doll and have it join Facebook. So. So the Brian doll was stolen. He joined Facebook. This is before I even joined Facebook. So, you know, I, I just joined it. So he had more friends than I did, the Brian doll did. And uh, then they thought it would be fun to send him on a tour. So they, he went all over the place, uh, just having, having all kinds of adventures. You know, here, here he is. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing there. Up to no good, probably. Here he is. Uh, here he is speaking to the Fresno Church up there, and here he is snorkeling in Hawaii, having uh, having Starbucks in Seattle. I don't know if you can see, but here he is getting a tattoo. And here he is at Disneyland. So he had a lot of fun, and then he disappeared. And nobody knows what happened to him. So it's kind of this strange mystery of where is the Brian doll. 
But, uh, but I share that story because that is not what happened with Jesus. Jesus is not a small-stuffed version of God. Do you know what I mean? Jesus is not like lesser or he's kind of not the real thing. When you, when you see, Jesus said something amazing. He said in, in John 14, He said, when you see the Father, you see me. And, and backing up, John 1, if, you're, if you turn there, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome or understood it. The Word became flesh and made His glory, made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, John, the book of John, John was written, uh, again, 700 years after what we just were reading in Isaiah. This is after Jesus' ministry. And John wrote uh, far long after the other Gospels were written. It's after the church had been around for a while. He wrote probably around 90 A.D. So the, the church started in, you know, the, the mid-30s, excuse me, and grew and, 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 and blossomed and spread. And, and uh, the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. So that really changed Judaism radically. John wrote in, in 90 A.D. So the, the church is growing. It's, it's all over the world. And there's a problem that's coming up in some of the churches called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism had these issues where they, 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 they would put it kind of where it's all about you. And it's all about your... Uh, understanding of hidden knowledge. Gnosis means knowledge. And so, a lot of scholars believe John was writing his, his gospel and his letters really combating that and saying how important it is to understand that Jesus was fully flesh and fully God at the same time. Because some, some Gnostics said Jesus never was flesh. He was just a spirit. And some said He never was deity. And, and so, G, John is saying, no, He was both. The Word became flesh. And that word translated... Uh, word in our in our translation is gnosis, which is, that's what Gnostics is based on kn- knowledge. It means to really really know. It means that uh, uh, kind of uh, your your frame of, of reasoning, your your intellect, your your kind of like your brain pattern is gnosis. And so that, that God's brain pattern, God's reason, God's intelligence, God's uh, God's word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Remember, Emmanuel, God with us. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus said in... Uh, oh, I want to show you another thing here. I'm getting off track with my notes. Uh, before we get to that, uh, have you ever seen the story, uh, the undercover boss? you ever seen undercover boss, anybody? Um, I, I had an experience kind of like that long before the show was on. I worked in an office... And uh, I was on, it was a call center, so I was on the phone all day long making calls, receiving calls. And uh, we had the CEO that, probably in every company, the CEO is a villain to many, right? People don't have much to talk about at work, so they, talk, they complain about everything about work, and, and they talk about what day it is, right? Oh, it's Monday. You know, the middle of the week, oh, it's Wednesday. You know, <laughs> towards the end, it's Friday. And then they complain about, I mean, that's, that's how it was at my office. You know, that's what people talked about was complaining about the boss and what day of the week it was. So this guy was kind of a villain. Uh, and, and, uh, but the, the, see, it was a large company, uh, thousands of employees, a thousand plus employees. But this one day he, he was sitting with sales associates and he sat with me one day. 
And so here's the, the, the CEO of the company sitting with me with his, he had a headset on, listening to me as I'm making calls and taking calls. And, uh, and just listening. And, and, and I was really impressed by, by him because he, he wasn't telling me what to do. He just wanted to learn. He wanted to kind of see what it was like from my vantage point. What life was like in the trenches, so to speak. And I was so impressed by that. And, and it really changed the way I thought of him. It changed my view of him. I, I saw him differently after that. And that's kind of what this show is about, if you've never seen it. Undercover Boss is where the CEO of a company will disguise himself and go work with one of the employees for a day or two and work with several of them. And, and, and a lot of times, you know, he'll say he's being trained by them or something. And then at the end of the show, he'll reveal himself. And, and uh, it's, it's pretty emotional a lot of times. This, in this particular instance, he wasn't supposed to reveal himself yet, but he kind of broke the rules and he reveals himself early. And so I'm going to show you that right now for a second. I appreciate you being here. No problem. I don't think I'm supposed to do this, but I got something to tell you. My name is Sean McNeil, and I'm the CEO of Run4Cons. No, come on. You're giving your raise. You're giving that raise that you want. And thank you for representing us the way you do. I wanted to show that because I think that's really more what it's like. It's God becoming a man. It's God coming down to earth, humbling himself and walking among us. You know, he, he lived our life. He breathed our air. He felt our temptations. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are and yet never sinned. So he can relate to us. He can understand what we're going through. He went through our life. He became one of us. Uh, remember Isaiah said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The, 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 Christ, the Christian, Christmas season, the Christian story, the, 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 this time of year, it's not just this cute little baby in a nativity scene. You know, it's the story of light entering darkness. It's the story of God entering the very world He created. He who is outside of space and outside of time and made all of the laws of physics and and of all of creation, designed everything. He became one of us. He became a human being. And He shall be called Mighty God. So powerful. What does God look like? A child was sitting at a table in her room, feverishly working on a project. Her mother came in and asked, Honey, what are you doing? I'm drawing a picture of God, she said. But nobody knows what God looks like, the mother replied. They will when I get through, said the child. It's interesting, Jesus said this, and this is what I was referring to earlier. John 14, 4, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Think about how profound that is for a minute. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And we're going to examine this a little bit. Number one, Jesus made bold claims. Jesus made bold claims. You know, Isaiah, uh, the, the story of the Bible is the story of God interacting with his people. And the overarching story is of him rescuing his people from our own sin. You know, from the very beginning where we fell, Adam and Eve and their sin, and we were cast out of the garden, we needed to be brought back into a relationship with him. We needed to be rescued. And uh, there, a very special time with the giving of the law where, where God and Abraham had this, uh, God and, and Moses rather had this relationship, and Moses 
uh, spoke from God to the people and gave him the law. And when, when God was calling Moses, when God uh, appeared to him in the burning bush, many of us are familiar with that story, um, Moses didn't want to go to the people at first. He'd been living as a shepherd for 40 years. He had run away from Egypt. Uh, and he was living in the land of Moab. You know, he ran away in, in fear of his life. And he had no desire to change it up. You know, he was comfortable. He didn't want to go back to Egypt. And yet, there was a higher calling he was being called to. And so he, he says to God, Moses said to God, well, who should I say sent me? If I go, they're going to say, who sent me? And, and, and God's answer is, I am who I am. So you will say, I am has sent you. And I am that, that I am in, in, in the Jewish, uh, in, 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 in Hebrew, there's no vowels in the Hebrew language. So it's called the tetra, tetragrammat, tetra, I'm saying it wrong. I would say tetragammon and it's wrong. It's the tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton. Okay, it's Y-H-W-H. And uh, for many years, the Jews never pronounced it because they didn't want to pronounce God's name. But, it, but it's interesting that God gave his name to Moses to be able to tell people, I am has sent you. Yahweh has sent you. That's the way we think it was said and that's the way most people say now it's Yahweh. But the I am has sent you. Isn't that a profound Name of God, I am. He always has been, he always will be. I am. And it's interesting because Jesus used that in the book of John. It's recorded several times. For example, in John 8, 24, Jesus says, For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John 8, 24. John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. But why? Because they knew what he was claiming. They were incredibly put off by that. They were incredibly offended. Because he, he's saying, you think you're better than Abraham? Abraham, you know, you're, you're just nobody. Abraham is this and Abraham is that. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus made bold claims. You know, you hear a lot of times nowadays this kind of myth that, oh, Jesus was a good teacher and he said good things and he was... But he, but he never claimed to be God, or he, he never, you know, he, he was just a, a good teacher, a moral teacher. Nobody wants to, to say Jesus was evil or something, but they'll say, oh, he was just good. You ever hear that? And yet Jesus made such bold claims that he had to be either Lord or a lunatic, you know, because he made such bold claims. And uh, we're going to look at a few of these. These are seven I am statements recorded in the book of John. And as I, as I look at these, think about how audacious some of these are. And I want you to ask yourself, you know, in your own life, how does this apply to you? John, John uh, 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. Amazing. The bread of life. Does Jesus fill you up? Does he satisfy you? Is he your source of nourishment? It's an audacious claim. I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Not a light. Not I'm a good teacher. I'm a good prophet. I am the light of the world. And so ask yourself, does he light up your life? Is he the light of your world? Or do you hide in darkness? John 10, verse 9. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He's claiming to be the road to salvation, the gateway to a relationship with God. Is he your entryway? Or do you remain locked, stuck, or trapped? 
Number four, he says, I am the good shepherd. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Why do sheep need a shepherd? Because sheep are really dumb. God did not gift them with wisdom. And so they'll, they'll follow each other into a trench. They'll, they, they don't know when they need to sleep. They don't know when they need to eat. They're just dumb creatures. And for some reason, God set this up to give us an example of how we are. We are dumb sheep. And we need a shepherd. So are you relying on the good shepherd to guide you and direct your life? Number five, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Are you living the way of Jesus? Are you walking? Is he, is he your source of eternal hope? Number six, the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What an audacious claim. That only through Him can you get to God? That is not popular in our society. You know, we live in a society that's kind of all about accepting everybody and there's many paths to God and I don't want to cast judgment on you or or this or that. And, and, you know, a part of that is good. Obviously, we're not supposed to be judgmental. And Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. And why do you look at the speck of dust in your brother's eye while you have a plank sticking out of your own eye? You know, we're not supposed to be judgmental, but at the same time, He made very... Bold statements, and he made very firm lines of what salvation means and how to how to get salvation and, and the way to God. He says, "No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life." And finally, the seventh one, John fifteen. He says, "I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener." He gives us this organic picture of a vine with the branches. And we are the branches and He is the vine. Are you, is that your relationship with Jesus? Are you plugged into Him? Is He your source of, of energy? Is He your source of sustenance? Are you seeing fruit in your life because of that relationship? Jesus made bold claims. Not only did He do that, but Jesus backed up His claims. Number two, Jesus backed up His claims. And just to share a few things of, of, of how He backed up His claims, uh, there were miracles done. And Jesus claimed to be a miracle worker. And uh, in, in John 10, he says, don't, don't believe me unless I do miracles. And they weren't, they weren't miracles like, like nowadays where, uh, you know, somebody has some unknown illness and then they feel better. I mean, you know, it was somebody who was dead for three days. And they pull him out of the tomb and, and it says the whole town was there. Not, not in front of just a couple people. I mean, some of his miracles were in front of a couple people. But Lazarus, the one that ultimately led them to say, we've got to kill this guy. He has a guy who's been dead three days, come out of the tomb. He's wrapped up in bandages. He can't, you know, he's, you just picture this mummy walking out of the tomb. And the whole town is there and witness as he was dead and now he's alive. Jesus did miracles. And the interesting thing is that even his skeptics accepted that he did miracles. Because many of his miracles were done in front of skeptics. So there was no one that said he didn't do miracles. There's many uh, other references besides the Bible that said Jesus was a miracle worker. The Jews said he was a miracle worker. The Romans said he was a miracle worker. It was generally accepted that he did miracles. It was just the Jews said, well, he doesn't by the power of Satan. 
He does them by the power of the devil or whatever. But Jesus did miracles. Even Muhammad admits Jesus did miracles and the Talmud concedes that he did miracles. Number two is character. You know, you probably experienced this. You ever had somebody that you really looked up to or kind of idolized a little bit and, and, and you, you wanted to get to know that person and then you get to know them and the closer you get to them, the more you see their warts and their faults and their issues. You know, even it, maybe in our church, you know, you, there was a leader that you really looked up to, you esteemed, and then you, you were able to get more time and then you're kind of like, oh, well, not quite as great as I had in my mind. You know, that happens all the time with, with you know, in the pop, pop culture world where, where somebody, you know, the, the, the president of a fan club finally gets time with whoever it is and then they're disappointed, right? But with Jesus, the closer you got to him, the more amazed you were. The more you saw his sinlessness, his character. The very people that were the closest to him, like John and Peter and James, uh, they faced torture, they faced death because they believed he was without sin. John 3, 5 says, in him there is no sin. 1 Peter 2 says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. His closest friend were killed for their faith and testimony to his faultlessness. The third way he backed up his claim is he, he, fulfilled the, he was the fingerprint of divine prophecy. He's the only person that has ever lived on earth that fulfilled all these prophecies in the Old Testament. And there are dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament um, you know, that, that only the Messiah would be able to match. And it forms a fingerprint that only he matches. He, he, the, the Bible said in the Old Testament he would be born of a virgin, that he would be this, from the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be called a Nazarene, that he would be heralded by a messenger, heralded by a messenger, that he would cleanse the temple, that he would be rejected by the religious leaders, that he would appear at a specific time in history. And there's an exact description of his death found in the Bible. Uh, a thousand years before he, he walked the earth, in Psalm 22, there's this exact description of his death. The way that he thirsted, the way they cast lots for his clothing, the things that people said as he was hanging on the cross, uh, that they pierced my hands and my feet. This is uh, hundreds and hundreds of centuries before crucifixion was even invented. Psalm 22 says, they pierced my hands and my feet. They cast lots for my clothing. I mean, it's amazing. Isaiah 53, again, another one that just has all these specific things that Jesus fulfilled. And you could say, well, maybe he just tried to, to live his life in such a way as to fulfill those. You know, maybe he realized, hey, I've already got, I was born of, I was born in the, in the tribe of David, and so let's make up the story about my mom, and let me, you know, let me, I, I was already have this and that, so let me just, there's no way he could have facilitated those things. You know, you picture him going, oh, can you guys go get a donkey? Because the scriptures say I have to ride into town on a donkey. Okay, so we got the donkey. But then how could he have determined exactly how many pieces of silver he would be trade for? Which Jeremiah records. You know, how would he be able to determine exactly how he would die or that, that exactly what the people would say as he was being crucified or that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb or that he would be crucified with the wicked? How could he have ever, you know, been able to organize all that? There, there's, only he, there's only one person ever in history that has, has fulfilled all of this. The chances are, are so infinitesimally small that anyone else could ever fulfill all of those things that Jesus fulfilled. Throughout history, there's only one person who fits this fingerprint, and it's the baby in the manger. And the ultimate backing up of his claim is he resurrected from the dead. 
He resurrected from the dead. And if you're interested in, in more proofs of this or you've liked this kind of stuff, uh, there's a great author named Lee Strobel, uh, L-E-E-S-T-R-O-B-E-L. Even if you search YouTube for Lee, Lee Strobel, there's a lot of videos of his. But he has several books. The Case for Christ is, is, is his classic book, and it's really good. And Lee Strobel was a journalist for many years, and, and he, was, he, he was a gifted journalist, uh, understood the, the rules and the, the ways of investigation. And so he decided to, he didn't believe in Jesus, but he decided to set out on a journalistic uh, expedition to try to determine what, what evidence there was for him. And he ended up being converted in the process. And he, he, he does a great job of, of kind of pulling all the evidence together. Uh, he came to the conviction that the resurrection of Jesus is the best attested event in the ancient world. That there's so many things that back up the fact that he rose from the dead. I mean, there's the empty tomb. Everyone agrees that the, the tomb was empty. Even those that, that persecuted the church, you know, Everyone accepted the tomb is empty. They, if they could have found a body, they certainly would have produced a body. But they, they said the apostles stole the body. And yet, why would, people, why would these apostles steal a body and then be tortured and killed for a lie? Everyone knew that the tomb was empty. Even the stories in the, in the, in the New Testament, you know, the, the stories in the, the... The apostles are not painted in a very positive light. Have you ever noticed that? You know, you read the, the, the gospel accounts... They are, they, they are a bunch of knuckleheads. And if they were the ones that s- somehow concocted the story, or, 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 why would they have done it that way? I mean, why would they make themselves look so foolish? And even the, this is a kind of interesting detail that Lee Strobel gives, that even the fact that it's women who Jesus first appeared to and women who first discovered the empty tomb. In the ancient world, in, in the first century, unfortunately, women's testimony was not accepted in a court of law. And they had a horrible view of women that Jesus really elevated. Amen. You know, but if they were in that, in that society, if they were trying to make a credible case, they never would have told the story that the women found the body open, the, the tomb open. They never would have done that because it, w- it was hurting their case in the first century. There, there was 500 plus eyewitnesses. And there's no way there could have been... Some people say there's group hallucinations and several people all saw the same hallucination. There's, there's no way that can happen because it's, it's hundreds of, 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 of eyewitnesses over different times. And some of them were skeptics. You might not realize that Jesus' brother, James, did not believe in him until after he rose from the dead and, and Jesus appeared to him. And then he became the leader of the church of Jerusalem and he was martyred for his faith. So, you know, he, he ha- these are real because they converted skeptics. They converted uh, the Apostle Paul, who was a, a murderer of Christians, then he saw the risen Jesus and he became one of the greatest leaders in the, in the Christian church. And, you know, these, these, these disciples were willing to die for their faith. And this is different than a terrorist. You say, well, a terrorist is willing to die for their faith. Yeah, but a terrorist, they've been told something and they believe it's true and they're willing to die for their belief. But they're not in a position to know whether or not what they've been told is true. Right? Whereas the apostles, they were in a position to know whether or not it was really true. They were in a position to know whether or not the, the, the virgin story was true, the, 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 the sinlessness of Jesus was true, the miracles were true, and whether he really rose from the dead. They were in a position to know why would they have been tortured and killed and, and, and you know, have this miserable end to their lives because of something they knew to be a lie. It's just not, it doesn't make any sense. Third thing is, what will you do with Jesus? Jesus made bold claims. He backed up his claims, so what, what are we to do? What will we do with Jesus? What's our response to mighty God? 
in a human form. Emmanuel, God with us. What do we do with him? It, it was finally his claim to be God that got him killed. Mohammed, Confucius, Buddha, these other, no, none of these other guys ever claimed to be God, and yet Jesus did. And, and, and because of that, we have to choose. Is he mighty God, or isn't he? He can't be just a good teacher. You know, e- either he's mighty God, or, or isn't he? And I think Satan wants to, to water that down. Satan wants us to think that, that God is not great, that God is not mighty, that God is tiny. That God doesn't see, or He doesn't know, or He doesn't care, or He hides Himself in times of trouble. And yet God does see, God does know, God does care. God is with us. Jesus came, and He's one of us, and His Holy Spirit, Steve talked about uh, last week, if you're a baptized follower of Him, His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus is inside you to guide you and direct you, and we just need to keep in step with His Spirit, and listen to His Spirit, and be led by His Spirit. We've got to respond to to the call to follow him if he really is mighty God. Um, I want to show another video. This is uh, from that same episode of Undercover Boss. And it's just kind of a good analogy to me to the response of understanding how God came low and emptied himself and became human. Sorry, let me see. Hmm. It's good, so let me just... Hold on one second. Let me make sure it's in here. I think it might not be there. Sure. Just exit for a second. Never ever again, again say, I feel invisible. And that's what understanding God with us, mighty God, uh, Emmanuel, that's what it really does for you, is it helps you understand that you are not invisible. The end of that psalm that we started with, you know, the, the psalmist who says, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble, God? Look how he finishes his prayer in Psalm 10. He says, but you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. You know, God hears and He knows and He sees and He understands and He came near to us. And so, He is the solution to the darkness of the world. And, and, and when we look at things like this tragedy and we go, what, what do we do? God is the answer. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He is the answer. And, and because God gave free will to all men, men are going to continue to do, choose evil, and evil things are going to happen. But we have a solution. We have Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. He's mighty. He's not tiny. And He's big enough to help you in times of trouble. He's big enough to hear you in your heartache. He's, he's strong enough to heal you in your hurts. Will you trust him? Will you obey him? Because it's in the times of darkness, it's in times of trouble that he really shows up. And that's where your faith is really built. If life was just easy and everything went well and there was no problems, how many of us would even choose to follow God? 
And yet in times of darkness and times of trouble is where Jesus really is the answer. Not only for us, but for the whole lost world. Jesus is the light to a dark world. And that's why we're here, to spread the light. I want to close with this, uh, this video. Um, you know, many of us have, have gotten to, to be great friends with the Bean Guards. They got, uh, they got uh, baptized. Uh, uh, um, I, I always say Bean Guards because my kids say Bean Guards. It's Ben Guards, sorry. <laughs> they're laughing over there. But uh, bro, uh, their, their daughter got baptized and Brock got baptized. And uh, Norma, uh, really appreciate her. She's always been very honest with... Uh, you know, where she's at and what she's feeling, what she's going through. And she had a, had difficulty with these things that we're talking about today, that Jesus is God. And she'd heard, you know, there's a lot of different things that said out there about Jesus. There's a lot of different teachings about Jesus. And she really wrestled with this. Is he divine? How can he be God? And she really wrestled with the lordship of Christ and the deity of Christ. And, and, and it was tough for her, but I appreciate it. She, she just did not give up on her faith. And she kept pushing through and and, and she really wanted to have this connection to God through Jesus. She wanted to have this, this relationship with God through Jesus. And so, um, you know, the, my wife and, and Jackie and others were studying with her. And, and, and they, it came time where she was ready. She wanted to make Jesus Lord. She, she said uh, she wants to get baptized. And she decided she wanted to get baptized at the marriage retreat. And, uh, and so they were, they were talking about baptism, what baptism's light and like. And, and Dessa said, it's not like there's going to be this light from heaven that shines... Or, you know, the skies part. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a decision that you're making and you're, you're pledging your life to Christ. And, and it's, it's an amazing and miraculous thing that's happening at the point of baptism. But it's not, it's not like this, you know, heaven's part kind of light from heaven type of thing. And it's like, okay, okay, what, you know, whatever. And then it's so funny because at the marriage retreat, as you know, it was rainy and it was cold and it was, you know, it was dark. And, and so uh, I want to show you the video of her getting baptized. And, and if you can put the audio up too. Does know. Mighty God does care. Mighty God is with us. Amen.